0: Uh, Hi Jessica, good to have you on the show.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me.
0: So um, for everyone who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself?
1: I have been a teacher for over 20 years, and I have been a writer forever, <laughs> my whole life. Um, but I wrote a book in that came out in 2013 called, oh, sorry, that came out in 2015, called The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And I get to live the most amazing life. I get to write. I'm currently writing a book about preventing substance abuse in kids, and uh, travel around the world talking about how kids learn and how kids can best uh, bounce back when they make mistakes and how we can be the best teachers and parents possible.
0: So um, could you please share with us the story behind like how you became a writer in the first place?
1: Yeah, so um, I mean, honestly, I, I knew from the time that a teacher in high school wrote on one of my papers, uh, I remember it so specifically. It was in the margins of one of my papers that I wrote, and it was a creative nonfiction essay. And it said, this is a beautiful image. I feel like I'm right there with you. And at that moment, I it was sort of like, it was so exhilarating to be able to put someone else's brain in the same space with mine. And, you know, I went on and, and was editor in chief of my school paper and all those things that you do when you continue to write. And then, um, and I wrote a book that wasn't published because uh, what, nobody's first, nobody's what was first it, about? Should, it was, it was about, it was about running a small farm and learning how to do that. And it was just one of those things that, you know, it was like your practice book. Everyone needs a practice book. And that was my practice book. And then, um, in 2013, I published an article at The Atlantic. I had been writing for some smaller education blogs and, uh, and stuff like that, and blogging about being a teacher. And uh, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic that went viral in 2013 called uh, Why Parents Need to Let Their Children Fail. And that article turned into the book The Gift of Failure that came out in 2015, and um, it's just been a lovely, lovely road. Uh, so I currently write occasionally for The Atlantic, uh, Washington Post, New York Times. And, um, and as I said, I have another book coming out in 2021.
0: So um, before we talk about your upcoming book, um, I think most of our listeners like uh, are in their early 20s or mid-20s, and um, they want to learn about a million different things. So what would you tell them?
1: Uh, young people that just want to learn a million different things
0: yeah oh they want to have better grades and so on yeah
1: so So, one of the wonderful things about my um school and career is that I've gotten to try lots of different things and honestly from my perspective that's the most important thing we do as learners I mean I think it's something that has gotten a little bit lost because parents want kids to be so focused on exactly (laughs) what they should be studying. You have to study business from the beginning or pre-med from the beginning. And the problem with that is you don't get to try other things. You don't get to try a lot of different things. And I'm a huge fan of, you know, when it's possible to do it, of a broad-based humanities education. I studied anthropology, I studied philosophy, I studied obviously lots of writing. I knew early on, like I said, I wanted to be a writer, but you know, in order to be a writer, especially the kind of writer I am, I, you know, one of the things that I'm, I do a lot is I read a lot of academic papers, scientific papers, social science, um, basic science, and I translate that for, for readers. And in order to do that, I have to know statistics because I have to be able to analyze whether a study is good or not. So from my perspective, <clears throat> I you know I graduated from college you know, knowing I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't get to be a writer right away. In fact, The Atlantic was the first writing internship I applied for, and I didn't even get an interview. So it was a particularly sweet moment when, you know, however many years later, 20 years later, I published in The Atlantic and it went viral because for me, it was such a nice moment of, okay, well, just because it didn't happen in whatever year that was, two thousand, sorry, 1992, doesn't mean that I'm a bad writer, or it just means that I wasn't ready then. So since then, since you know, getting that first job rejection, I've I I wrote for um, a U.S. governor, a state governor. I wrote, I've um, I did scientific writing. I did HIV research for a little while. I went to law school. I uh, worked on a team that assessed kids for physical and sexual abuse, and had a mentor um, that made me think for a little while I wanted to be a lawyer, so I went to law school, and all of that led me back to writing. And so now the writing I do, I write about juvenile justice, and I write about child welfare, and <clears throat> I'm, I happen to be married to an HIV scientist. And so it's all of these things have sort of come back to feed my writing. And people ask me all the time, "Are you, are, do you regret that you went to law school since you're not working as a lawyer? And luckily, I I went to an inexpensive law school because I was in-state and I went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and they, they still keep education affordable in the state of North Carolina. And so my answer is always, no, it, it taught me to be a better thinker. It taught me to mm. think in a way that I, law school in particular, teaches you to think in a way that's really particular to anticipating arguments, anticipating counterpoints, and that I'm not naturally that kind of thinker so all of these my advice to kids is always to think about what they love and then augment that with classes and lots of things that um, they're just interested in you know take mm. that astronomy class take that you know human biology class my my husband went into college believing he wanted to be a writer and a journalist and couldn't get any jobs and was working in a furniture store and ended up so bored that he took a um, he took an evening course in human biology at Harvard Extension School in Boston and had that lightning bulb moment well after he'd graduated from college that was like this is what you're meant to do and he had to go back to school and retake all those classes so the path should be winding is my opinion mm. because i you know i don't ever want a kid to look back and think Man, I could have taken so many opportunities to learn about history or learn about whatever in college, and I was too afraid right. to do that because I thought I thought I had to take this direct line to six figures or whatever that you know that end goal is.
0: Yeah, and how does um, failure come come into that picture?
1: <laughs> oh, so many ways. So, from, you know, <laughs> my, my book is called The Gift of Failure, but the last thing I want is for kids to fail. What I do want is for kids to. You know, I've dedicated my life to being a teacher. And what I do want is for kids to know how to have a. P- from my person, <laughs> I keep saying that phrase, that's a I got to excise that one for my vocabulary. Um, I've had so many moments in law school, in particular, my first class. My first semester of law school was really, really hard. Like I said, it was a way I'd never thought before. Um, Classes, you know, in first semester of law school are understood to be really difficult and rigorous, and they give you more work than you can ever complete. And at the end of my first semester, as a person who had done really, really well in school, I was expecting this would be hard, but I also thought it would be fine. And I didn't take the practice exams because... I don't know. I guess I figured only people who are, you know, really falling behind need to take those. <laughs> and I ended up I ended up getting uh, almost I almost failed. It came really close. It was like two more points and I would have failed one of my exams. And my very first impulse was to quit law school, hmm. not to talk to the professor, not to see how I could what I did poorly and could fix for next time, but to quit, because clearly, if I'm getting a D on my first law school exam, that means I'm not cut out for this. This means I can't do it. And luckily I had a friend who talked me out of it and she went with me to talk to the professor and find out what had gone wrong and how to fix it for next time. And everything was fine next time because I learned from this professor, he said, oh, you know, you did these four things wrong, fix that and you'll be fine. And I was, but the fact that my first impulse was to quit that's what I don't want for kids. I don't mm. want kids to come up against that first moment, whether that's you know, you've always been good at math your entire career, you know, educational career, and you get to college and the very first class kicks your butt and you think, oh, well, that's it. I'm stupid. I can't do this. I'm not cut out for math. Um, you know, those sort of responses are what I don't want for kids. And it turns out that the way we parent and teach kids is directly tied to those kinds of responses. So that's what I get to travel around teaching about now is how to how to help parents understand that some of the things we do in order to keep our kids from feeling frustrated or upset or um, that those when we push all those things away out of our kids' paths, then one of the things we do is is set them up to have these kinds of responses later. And we set them up to be less able to learn from challenging educational experiences. And it turns out that those challenging ex- educational experiences, some of them, uh, a certain type, are called what's called desirable difficulties. And those kinds of experiences uh, help that? us learn the most. So Desirable Difficulties were written about in a book called Make It Stick, which is behind me somewhere, um, by out of Harvard University Press. And in that book, the three authors talk about desirable difficulties and these things called formative assessments. It's a fantastic book. And it turns out that uh, when things are a little bit more challenging for us to get into our brains, for our brains to sort of process and parse, that our brains skip over the sticking it in short-term memory and encode it in long-term memory. And it's sort of like a shortcut for learning. Any opportunity I can give for my students to have to push a little harder, think a little harder process a little harder as the information goes in then they are going to be more likely to learn that in a durable deep way and so i use all of those tools with my own kids and with my with my students now so leaving my mm-hmm. kid to figure out how to do something himself means he will probably learn it better than if I just led him through it and told him every single step to do and said, okay, first do this, now do that. That's called directive parenting. Um, but if I give him the basic skills he needs and then let him sort of take, take have some autonomy and take some direction as to how he learns that thing, then he'll be a lot more likely to um, to learn it well and be able to teach it to someone else, which is really how we know when we're we really have learned something well is when we can teach it to someone else.
0: Mm. And I also think that um, everything you've talked about on on failure applies to so so many different areas. For instance, I was just talking, uh, thinking about the startup world, and people fail yeah. there, like yeah. all. Th- time. Yeah. But for them, it's experimentation. And right. Um, right. it actually helps to achieve their goal at the end. So um, well, and think, that, yeah. that
1: all comes out of that design thinking uh, and sort of that design learning, design thinking concept, which is you have to turn yourself around, put yourself in the head of the end user, and then try all of these iterations that are tuned to that end user. And it's really difficult, especially for kids, to do that kind of perspective taking, to turn things around and think, okay, so if I'm building this ramp for this person that's in a wheelchair, of course I have to get in the wheelchair myself. Of course I have to think about arm strength. Of course I have to think about all of these different things that may not affect me, but affect someone else. And that right there requires kids to come up against, oh, I never. I would never have thought of that the first time mm. around until I got in there and mucked around with it and made some mistakes and figured out. Oh, the angle can't be more than whatever it is. I have no idea. Um, in order to, but the kids only know that by figuring it out themselves and trying it. And that's what, mm. why you know, project or problem-based learning is such a wonderful way to teach kids concepts, especially around like you know engineering or um, you know. There's so many wonderful projects that kids can teach you can teach kids by getting them and letting them get in there and try stuff as, as as opposed to you know giving them instructions in a kit which is you know fine and you can get the job done but they're not going to learn as much
0: I think this also applies to adults for instance I know, uh, so so many people that are reading about certain topics, so so many different books, they are listening to so so many different podcasts, and they think that they become, eventually, that they become like good at uh, at the skill. <laughs> but um, I think at the end of the day, you actually have to do it yourself. So
1: yeah, yeah. Um, uh, podcasting right there. I mean, when people, so I have a podcast as well, myself, it's called the hashtag am writing podcast. And my co-host who is, well, I have two co-hosts now. One is my former New York times editor and who's now a fiction writer. And one is a bestselling, uh, contemporary romance author. And when people tell us that they're binge listening to my, to the I'm so horrified because those early podcasts, not only were we, um, so now we have, we've sort of figured out how to get the sound right, but early on, KJ, my my initial co-host, we would get up in this Eve space in my house that was freezing cold in the winter, super hot in the summer, because we thought we had to be in this perfectly sealed off environment and um, the sound was terrible, we hadn't mastered it yet, we were terrible interviewers. So yeah, that's been a process, and the fun thing about that, some of my favorite youtube videos for example there's this guy jim who runs a um he has a podcast called um it's about beekeeping uh it's a his uh youtube channel is vino farm v-i-n-o-f-a-r-m and he decided to become a beekeeper and he decided to take people along on that journey with him because he figured he'd learn from the people in the comments and you could learn from his mistakes. And so mm. every time he's made a big mistake, he says, you know, this is this is someone I know personally. He's like, this is totally humiliating, but I have to post it because otherwise someone's gonna make the same mistake that I did.
0: Mm. So
1: between, you know, the, the hashtag I'm writing podcast, we talk a lot about the mistakes that we've made and how not to make them um, as writers. And, you know, he does it with beekeeping. Those are, I, I'm totally into that. I, I love it when someone takes me through a process of how they did something what went wrong so that i cannot make that mistake myself i think that's that's such a gift and when people pretend like they're perfect and they've never made any mistakes Number 1 I don't believe them and number 2 <laughs> they're mean. not helping anyone else, right? So yeah. on the podcast, I mean we talk about money, we talk about when we when we accepted contracts that were bad, when we've worked with difficult editors because that's going to help someone else and that to me is the epitome of what the internet is, oh, what the internet is made for. I love that about the internet.
0: <laughs> so um let's talk about your upcoming book. I think um, sure. this is an interesting topic for everyone because i I know for a fact so so many people in my age that are using drugs drinking alcohol all the time smoking pot using ecstasy and I was never attracted by those things so um, why do you think that especially so so many young people in their early 20s mid-20s or even kids Mm -hmm. are attracted by those things
1: Well, to back up, so I'm an alcoholic and I've been in recovery. um, I've been sober for almost seven years and I have a lot of addiction in my family. Could could
0: you um, unpack the story for us?
1: Could I do what?
0: Uh, Unpack the story for us.
1: Oh, of of my own sobriety? Yeah. Oh, so uh, so I come from a long line of, and so does my husband, incidentally. So we've both got it on both sides of our family, and there's a genetic component to substance to substance abuse so your disorder. Your parents
0: were already drinking and smoking all the time, or?
1: um, I'm gonna just leave it that my it's on my side of the family. Those oh, are their stories okay, to okay. share, not mine. And same thing with my husband. So um. I actually didn't become a serious alcoholic until I was li- until older, Till I was older. I never drank as a kid, hardly ever. It just wasn't my thing. I was one of those, like, trying to be the perfect kid all the time. And I was scared of alcohol and drugs because I had seen what it had done to people that I loved. So I stayed far, far away from it. And then in my 40s, it just crept up on me. Um, alcoholism just crept up on me.
0: How 40s. did it happen?
1: Um, I just... I found myself it started as you know one glass of wine while I'm making dinner and then it just sort of escalated and suddenly I realized that I was um I was hiding it and I was how, that, how
0: bad was it? If you feel comfortable sharing it or not, it
1: was bad. I mean, it was bad. So, in in the recovery world, people talk about, and this is so not the way to talk about it, but people talk about like high bottoms and low bottoms. Like people who really bottom out and are living on the street and puking in oh, okay. the gutter. Um, and then there are high bottoms, which you know, which is I was really fortunate. I'm I'm what I've choose to refer to as like a not yet alcoholic. Like I did don't have a DUI. I'd never been drunk drunk at work. Um, okay. there, but all of these things were going to happen for me. Uh, for me, um, my bottom fell out in the sense that I wasn't sleeping anymore. I was highly anxious. I was um, keeping secrets from my, um, my husband and my children. And I knew for a fact that my husband... Did
0: anyone know about this? And, and please continue.
1: No, I just, um, in fact, when I came out to my friends and told them that I was starting, um, I was going to stop drinking, I had to convince them that it was a problem. It was a huge problem in my life and that it had really derailed. um, I I could see that all these things were about to happen. And also the person who finally confronted me about my drinking was my father. And that was a really meaningful moment when he said to me, he said, look, um, I know what an alcoholic looks like, and boy, he did know what an alcoholic looked like, uh, and you're an alcoholic. And I had no excuses at that point. So, and, and
0: how much were you drinking? So, um it, like it, a, a really bottle of wine
1: it, it doesn't matter because okay. for me it was too much. it was it yeah, was okay. um, yeah, okay. it was just it was too much. So, um, and the problem is is when you start talking about stuff like how much an individual person is drinking, one of the things that can happen um, is that you, People who are struggling with substance abuse themselves can say either, well, you know, I was not drinking anywhere near that much, so it's not a problem for me. Or, um, you know, there's all this comparison that happens. And so I choose, you know, leaving that out makes things a little bit easier. Um, But what's nice about it is the fact that I talk about the fact that I'm an alcoholic. Lots of people come to me and they're like, look, I'm, I'm not feeling right about this either. And every addict or alcoholic sort of knows you could you know when you've had enough and i mm. had had enough and when my dad called me out on it um i was just really relieved more than anything so anyway so i uh went into recovery and, and um it was yeah it was, and was
0: it like scary. was it like really hard um to to tell your friends about it
1: yeah it was really scary because i was a teacher And, you know, and I lived in a really small town and I lived in fear of running into the parents of my students and having them know about it. But see, the problem is, is that when we don't talk about it that's what keeps it shameful so Mm. you know there's this joke that you know i was i was afraid of running into my students parents at a meeting at a recovery meeting um not even thinking about the fact that the only reason they would be at the recovery meeting is if they were struggling with the same stuff i was struggling with and i had conveniently forgotten that so um about a year after i got sober i started teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol facility for kids and for adolescents. And so uh, for five years, I taught uh, kids in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab. I was there writing an English teacher. So not only am I raising two boys, I have two boys myself, I'm raising those kids under the genetic specter of substance abuse. And I'm teaching these kids that I can just see in front of me, these kids who have been raised in such a way that often they were sort of primed to become substance abusers. Um, And so this book sort of was born out of all of that, all of the Mm. years of teaching the stuff that's in gift of failure, all of the learning I've been doing about, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences and genetics and all that stuff. And so, you know, even just researching to get to the point where I could propose this book to my publisher, that took over a year just to do a lot of the research, even to just get to the point where I felt like I could talk intelligently about this stuff. And then it took another year and a half after that to research, to write the book. So, you know, there's been years of research. And and again, that's one of the fun things about being a journalist. You know, if I don't know much about genetics, then I've got to go back to school a little bit and learn about genetics. Or if I don't know about... Um, you know, uh, adverse childhood experiences and and the impact those can have on kids. And I've got to go back and relearn all that stuff. So I attend classes, I take online classes, and I read and read and read and read and read. And read. So anyway, so that's how that has been born.
0: And and what have you learned um, on preventing substance abuse? What 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 have been the most important lessons on that?
1: So the big, the big picture is that, um, genetics are about 50%, 40 to 60% of the picture when it comes to substance abuse. So if you have a family history of substance abuse, then you're already kind of primed to be more likely to enjoy your drugs and alcohol a little too much. And so those are the conversations I have with my kids a lot. We don't talk about, you know, we talk less about, um, we get straight to the deal we get straight to the sort of here's what it's like when you like it a little bit too much here's what it's here are the danger signs to look for when um use turns to abuse and my kids are now 21 and 16. um well so, uh, you know, for me, it was and and something that I hear a lot in, in recovery is um, people saying things like, you know, oh, I tried alcohol or I tried pot or whatever. But then, man, I tried meth. This is actually something that um, Nick Chef in the book. Hold on. He has a wonderful book. Uh, see this book, <laughs> Nick Chef in this book. We all fall down. He was addicted to methamphetamines. And, you know, he talks about the fact that, yes, he had done pot and yes, he had drunk alcohol. But man, when he had meth, that was it. That was like the answer for him. It it pressed all the right buttons. It just clicked for him. And he, t- he writes about that in various books, actually. And For me, for example, uh, pot has never been something I've ever been interested in. But man, alcohol really did it for me. It just sort of helped me breathe. It helped me relax. So knowing that there that click for some people will happen and that that and then you have to get to the question of so what is um, what's causing you to want to escape from your life? And so that's the other half of the equation Mm -hmm. is. So substance abuse, you know, genetics are 40 to 60 percent of the picture. But the basic question is, what is it that, is, you know, there's some people who talk about it It's self-medicating. There's a lot of factions in substance abuse and and in scholarship and, and people saying, oh, you can't use the, the self-medication model or you got to use this other model over here. But that with kids, there's a couple of different things. Number one, kids are primed. Kids' brains are – we used to think that kids' brains were done developing when they were like 10 because 10-year-olds' brains are the same size as they will be. They're fully grown. They're the same size as they'll be when the kid is an adult. But, you know, I've spent a lot of time around 10-year-olds, and those kids are not fully
0: developed. (laughs) I would say so, too.
1: (laughs) From from like 10 from, you know, puberty – through early 20s this incredible thing is happening in kids brains it's um it's called plasticity it's a, hu- a period of massive change and development. And it's a period during which our environment really impacts our brains. And um, uh, there's a couple of different things is happening. Um, kids, are their synapses are just exploding, growing lots and lots of new synapses. And the matter, the actual structure, the actual cells in the brains are changing. They're getting this coating of fat around them called myelin. So all this stuff is happening, myelination and synaptogenesis. And one of the things that's happening during that process is that the frontal lobe in our brain, the part that's like our, I, when I talk to kids about it, I talk to them about it like a school bus. The guy in the front or the woman, the bus driver, who's in charge and has to keep track of the road and what time it is and all the kids in the bus and can keep all that stuff organized and, and can can sort of be in charge of the bus. That's the frontal lobe. Mm-hmm. All the crazy kids acting out in the back of the bus, that's the lower brain part. That's like the amygdala. And kids mm-hmm. are act tend to act from their amygdala, from, from that center, from that emotional center of the brain mm-hmm. where they tend to strike out or be more emotional. And the problem is, is that we also have these like, a, we have stop circuits in our brain. And kids are all go, go, go without a lot of stop, without a lot of breaks. And the frontal lobe is the breaks. And so kids right off the bat, you know, they love sensation seeking, like new sensations and excitement. And um, they want to feel new experiences and to have things be exciting because kids, especially adolescents, have lower levels of dopamine in their brain. And the thing that sort of dopamine, think of dopamine as motivation dopamine is what gets us out of bed in the morning it is our brain's motivation our 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 very impetus to get out of bed and live our lives and if they have baseline lower levels of dopamine life feels kind of boring and if you introduce exciting things like jumping off a garage roof mm-hmm. into a pool or taking drugs or whatever, those things make life exciting. And um, But the problem is, is with, you know, exciting experiences are great. That can stimulate dopamine, um, but drugs will actually stimulate that dopamine and then cause it to fall to levels lower than where it started in the first place. So you end up with a kid whose baseline may be a little more bored than an adult might be, you know, during summer vacation or um, when they're laying around on a weekend and they're like, oh, it's so <laughs> What am I going to do? That's not so much their fault. It's honestly because they have lower levels of dopamine. But if you take drugs to sort of boost that dopamine, then you fall to lower than where you were before and so on and so on and so on until you literally can't get out of bed in the morning. And that's, you know, dopamine fills in that, that place in our brain, that receptor in our brain and, and more than any other exciting experience. Mm and also causes it to lower levels after the fact so you know kids are sensation seekers kids you know they they want new experiences and so we as parents have to help them sort of harness that need for new experiences and that need also to feel loved I mean the kids that I teach in the rehab or that I taught the the that position ended because they closed the adolescent wing of the rehab which is totally unfortunate but Um, those kids also a lot of them um, come out of a situation where they've been in really difficult home situations, or they've been in group homes, or they've been in foster care, and a lot of them haven't felt a lot of um, caring and support and love. And so when a kid tells me that taking um, Oxycontin or shooting heroin is like being hugged by God, I mean, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, if you've not had a lot of love and suddenly you can take a pill or shoot something up that makes you feel completely 100% unequivocally loved. I would go to a lot of lengths to feel that if I, because, you know, we crave that as humans. So partially for adolescents, it's a developmental issue. They're more primed to seek out you know, the risk of things like drugs and alcohol, and to seek the dopamine rush, and to medicate for, you know, the issues they're having in their lives, whether that's academic failure, whether that's a lack of a nurturing environment, whether that's, you know, the the trauma of going, their parents getting divorced, those kinds of things cause kids to seek out some sort of escape. And so you've got the genetic factors, and then you've mm. got trauma. and And there's, there's one school of thought that believes that it's all about the trauma, that substance abuse is completely 100% about treating trauma. And, you know, I, I don't know that I'd go that far, although, you know, that's a, there's some really intriguing scholarship, scholarship on that. But it is a, a 50-50 mix, it seems, between genetics and the environment around you that causes you to go in the direction of wanting drugs and alcohol. And And some of that has to do with your day-to-day exposure, um, who you're hanging out with, uh, what your parents are doing and whether or not drugs are accessible in your environment. So mm. it's, there's so many parts to this, which is what's so fun, makes it so fun to write about because there is a lot that we don't know about exactly how that key fits into that lock and, and why a kid might click with a certain substance. Um, you know, there are certain Nick chef talks about the fact that he, he had, um, attention, Issues as a kid, And it's no surprise that methamphetamine worked really great for him because the drugs that we give kids for attention deficit disorder is and it's speed. So of course, Nick Shep, who had, you know, attention issues, clicked with a speed. So there are certain drugs that are appealing to certain, kids for very valid reasons having to do with the way their brain is wired. Um, But I think as adults, one of the things we have to do is, you know, spoiler alert, the book is all about early interventions and making sure that kids are getting treated early for and getting response early for early learning issues, early aggression, um, early attention issues so that we can help them not end up dealing with the social ostracism or the academic failure that is a big trigger for substance use.
0: Yeah. And, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a guy and his name is, uh, Tommy Rosen and he's like, I think Mm -hmm. in his mid fifties or something. And, um, when he was in his twenties, he had like a huge drug problem. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, he, he came from a normal background, great mm-hmm. parents, good, grew up in a great neighborhood, and he's a good-looking guy. And I think a lot of people have this big misconception that um, people that get into heavy drug use um, have, like, a, a very sketchy background and terrible parents and grew up in, in bad, bad neighborhoods. And, um, yeah, this guy came, like, from, from great, great parents, had, yeah. had a great upbringing, but still uh, got into drugs. So
1: well and what one of the really interesting things here is that one of the big drivers of the opiod, opioid adep, epidemic sorry here in the United States was prescription painkillers and kids kids who have more whose families have more money get prescribed far more opiates than uh, poor kids because you know, parents know how to push, and and parents have the insurance, and you know they go and get their wisdom teeth out, and a and a kid who maybe doesn't come from means um, might just be sent home with you know an over the counter pain reliever, whereas a kid whose parent has more money and and better insurance may go home with uh, prescription opiate. And um, you know, and I also think that you know, back to the gift of failure stuff. There was never this expectation um, for much of human history that we as a species would be pain free. And, you know, when my own kids got their wisdom teeth pulled out and someone went to hand us, this is the first one was sort of really before the the, it got we got much stricter on our prescription pain medication um, uh, rules. And they said, do you want a prescription for opiates for your kid? And we said, no. (laughs) Number one, it's not good. Number one, having opiates just around the house is an invitation for disaster because that's where kids are getting them. Most kids are getting opiates, um, at least the first ones out of other people's uh, medicine cabinets. And so having opiates like, Laying around is just a disaster waiting to happen. Um, so disposing of those safely is one of the most important things that parents can do in from the get go. Um, but my, in the end, my kid never needed prescription opiates. That you know, ibuprofen sort of handled things fine. Yeah. And so I think a little discomfort is something that we have um, come to see as something to be medicated immediately. And you know, maybe that's not how we should be thinking about pain. There's a whole school of thought that we as parents have become so, so consumed with keeping our kids um, completely comfortable all the time that discomfort has come to be a bad thing, whether that's mm. emotional, physical, uh, intellectual, you know, seeing our kids be frustrated or seeing them ache a little bit has been, has come to be something that we have to fix immediately for them. And, you know, maybe that. Isn't always the case. I think having seeing our kids be frustrated about something, especially when it comes to learning a new skill, is part of the process and not something to be avoided. And it's certainly not something to be avoided in the name of having our kids feel bad about themselves. There's a wonderful book by um, Scott Barry Kaufman called Ungifted, and it was about his struggle when he was younger with um, uh, he had a he had a disability. Uh, he had a, a learning issue that sort of resolved itself, but when it, once it resolved, they didn't take him out of special ed because his parents didn't want him to be challenged and then get frustrated. And it turns out that was the very thing he needed was more Mm -hmm. challenge. And so Scott does a really good job of breaking down these moments when we're trying to protect our children and keep them from feeling frustrated. And yet sometimes those are the very moments when we need to let them struggle a little bit so that they can learn just how competent they can be as opposed to just feeling safe all the time.
0: So um, two broad questions here. Okay. Um, the first one is, um, what would you tell someone in his early twenties who is um, experimenting with drugs at the moment? And the second question being, um, what would you tell someone who is deeply into heavy drugs and want to get out of it? Oh,
1: two tough questions. So okay, so. The the nice thing about this process of the brain changing, this plastic uh, period when our brains are sort of maturing, they're not done maturing until we're sort of in our mid, early to mid twenties. So for kids and substances, the big the big point is delay, 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 delay. So there are a lot of drugs that uh, mar- marijuana, in particular, that seems to not have as much of a negative effect on a a fully developed brain than it does on an adolescent brain. Um, Drugs and alcohol actually affect kids differently than they do adults because the brain is still evolving. So for example, um, with with pot, for example, um, it seems to have a much uh, more substantial impact on the hippocampus, which is where we create memories and can have a a long lasting effect on an adolescent's hippocampus. But once a kid gets to be in their mid twenties, it's less likely to do, you know, any major damage. So when it comes to younger kids, I'm always about explaining to them the damage, the very specific damage that certain drugs and alcohol are doing to their brain. Because I think, um, in fact, uh, one of my relatives, it was funny. One of my relatives who had a drug and alcohol problem, he, he was in deep. I mean, it was bad. And he finally went to go see a doctor after he'd had a medical issue. And that doctor showed him the MRI of his brain and showed him the loss that he had already suffered from the drugs that he had been doing and said, look, these areas, you're never getting those back. And if you keep doing the drugs you're doing, it's only going to get worse. See, and and at that point, my and this was a one of my cousins. He had a kid at that point. He had a lot of reasons to sort of think about how his use was affecting other people. And he'd been doing drugs and alcohol for a long, long, long time. But seeing that MRI film right in front of him and having a physician actually point to the brain and say, "Look, this is the damage you're doing," I don't think we give people enough credit for being able to think about the actual information. And it turns out that when you're talking about drug and alcohol prevention, um, giving kids information is actually a lot more effective than scaring them. Um, mm. do those scaring tactics, the one like, oh, you're going to end up in the gutter and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it turns out a lot of those programs, like the scared straight program, <laughs> and the iterations of um, drug and alcohol prevention programs that we used to do in the 80s, Some of those programs, um, it turns out that when you look at the research on those programs, one in particular, the early iterations of the DARE program, kids were more likely to use drugs and alcohol after having gone through that drug and alcohol prevention program than if they hadn't gone through the program to begin with. So just scaring The total
0: opposite effect.
1: I know. So just scaring them, that doesn't work. It just Hmm. doesn't work. So what does work is giving kids information about their brains, about how drugs and alcohol impact their brains and, and giving them the information to make some, some decisions themselves, allow them to have some, to give them the message that they are competent and that they can make some decisions themselves. So when it comes to someone who's still young, especially a kid who's still in college and using a lot of drugs and alcohol, there is a lot of data to show that the very centers that you're supposed to be working on working with like your hippocampus is really adversely affected and not just in the short term but in the long term by drugs and alcohol and waiting is key and the interesting thing is that if you look at who uses drugs and alcohol starting late Is not really part of the picture. It's sort of like there's this huge peak when, um, you know, during adolescence when people tend to start trying drugs and alcohol, and then it tapers off. And by the time you get to your mid to late 20s, it's down here. So delaying that um, experimentation is great. The other thing we know is that like, especially for parenting younger kids, that letting them have sips of alcohol at home, um, in the U S we've always thought that, oh, that'll, you know, help our kids learn to be responsible about drinking and blah, 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 blah. And it turns out that's not actually how it works at all. That if you look at the research on letting kids have sips at home, um, and having that Attitude of permissiveness around alcohol, those kids are much more likely to go on to have um, a substance abuse issue during their life. You wouldn't lifetime. expect and that, to be honest. I know, I wouldn't either. And I, you know, I raised for, until I started doing this research, giving kids a sip of wine or champagne or whatever, that was always something that was okay because I thought that I was teaching them to have moderation around alcohol. Yeah. It turns out that that's not how it works if you look at the mm. research. And people are always saying, "Well, look at Europe. Look at the kids in Europe. The kids, in, you know, your kids in France and Italy—they always have that wine." Da da da. Well,
0: yeah, I, Germany I, too. I, I would say.
1: I, well, I hate to break it to you, but but Eastern Europe, in particular, but Europe has the highest levels of substance abuse of alcoholism in the world. So.
0: They didn't know that either. Yeah.
1: Maybe it doesn't work. Yeah. If you look at the um if you look at the World World Health Organization, Google World Health Organization and Rates of Alcoholism, and you'll see that it's it's Europe that has the <laughs> highest rates of alcoholism in the world. Yeah. In fact, um, France has, has done a whole bunch of policy changes uh, there, there and Russia just did a whole bunch of policy changes around alcohol and licensing and labeling and and who can buy it and how um, that are appear to be working to reduce, um, you know, reduce rates of alcoholism. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't learn this until my younger son was he's now 16 and he feels like he got sort of the short end of the stick because with my older kid, I kind of thought, well, I'm doing the right thing by letting him have sips. And now I'm trying to not let my younger one have sips. And he's like, look, I totally got the short end of this stick. You learn. And I I said, well, the problem is, is that I I learned some stuff. I thought I was doing the right thing before. And, and, you know, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Part of my job. And that's, you know, at the beginning of this, you asked me about learning and how people figure out how to get, you know, where they're going to go. You know that's part of the process. The reason there's all these books behind me is that, you know, my job is to continue learning. And when I was a, you know, teaching every single day in the classroom, It was great because if I was going to teach about Robert Frost, I had to go out and anticipate any questions my students might have about Robert Frost and continue to learn. And so now that I'm not in the classroom every single day, I've sort of I've tried to keep that process of learning a really important part of what I do. I read a lot and I research a lot so that. I can find out if, you know, the things I've been doing or the things I've been saying, maybe I'm incorrect about those. And there's always room for us to learn. And that's what's, that's what's fun about being a journalist and a writer is, you know, and writing books is my job is to get interested in something, learn a lot about it, and then explain it to someone else. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no better job on the planet.
0: <laughs> so, um, Jessica, oh, we have
1: answer. I didn't even yeah. answer question about the older person.
0: Uh, yeah. No.
1: Honestly, the older person who might be having issues, talk to someone else. It talk, you know, people, if you, uh, in fact, I have a running line of texts on my phone from people who are a little concerned about their drugs and alcohol use, but aren't quite ready to quit, um, but who get in touch with me every once in a while just to talk to me because they know I'm in recovery. and. It's not my job to make them quit. I can't do that. I can I can be here and I can offer to take them to a meeting with me or I can offer to talk to them about how I quit or I can offer to talk to them about what it's been like, you know, not drinking and and how I You know, it's the holiday season and there are almost all the parties I go to, like there's the big bar and then there's, you know, (laughs) here's the water. You can have some water over here um, and how I negotiate that and how I keep myself safe, you know, during the holidays and going to parties and stuff. And I, you know, I keep those text threads on my phone because I figure when they're ready, um, I'm here. And so honestly, I, from my perspective, as someone who has gone through this, being able to talk to other people who have gone through it also and and are on the other side of it, that's not shameful to admit that mm, I'm concerned and has taught me a lot about myself and has given other people the opportunity to be helpful to me. And so in turn, now I have the opportunity if people want it for me to reach out and say, you know what, I'm really concerned. And I was talking about this at a at a. I was talking about this recently at a speaking event, I can't remember where, and this guy emailed me after, and he was just someone in the audience. I didn't even meet him during the book signing afterwards. He was just in the audience, and he got in touch with me through my website, and he said, you know what, I've been worried about this for a couple of years, and just the fact that you stood there on that stage, and you said that you are an alcoholic to me, that just blew my mind. And do you mind if I email you every once in a while to ask you some questions? And we talked and we emailed and, um, he struggled with some stuff and now he's in recovery. And, and that to me is amazing. And the, and I think it's going to be increasingly important for people who have, who have survived addiction That's the only way that people who are struggling with it are gonna be able to find someone to talk to and find help. So find someone. You know, just look at the problem. Is is it's hard when you're inside of it to see how it's impacting other people around you. And often when you're when you're really using heavily, you feel like you're not worthy of anyone's love anymore, and you're and other people around you don't care about you anymore, and no one would care if you just died. And that's not true. And I think having other people tell you that and having other people um, ratify that you're worthy of existing and worthy of getting help is one of the best things you can
0: do. So um, Jessica, at the end, I always ask every guest five questions, yes. but um, okay. before I, <laughs> before I ask those five questions, like what would be your best advice on all those different things that we've <laughs> talked about today? So um, what would you tell our listeners right now?
1: Learning isn't supposed to be easy. Learning is something that is difficult. Some things are more difficult. Like for me, uh, math tends to be more difficult than um, learning about, you know, humanities. But that doesn't mean that I can't do it. That just means it's mm. difficult. And so, try to remember that uh, part of the struggle, part of the it, part of becoming more intelligent and becoming having increasing your capacity to become more intelligent um, requires a little bit of struggling with concepts. And that's good. That's not that doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean you're not cut out for something. It means that this is a difficult concept and that it's going to take some time for you to master it. And sometimes those concepts, those ideas, those that learning is going to really be worth it once you get to the other side. There's some really hard stuff that's worth doing and uh, and stick with it. (laughs)
0: So um, where can people uh, connect with you on the social webs and uh, buy your book and so on and so forth?
1: So um, you can always find everything at jessicalahy.com and it's L-A-H-E-Y, JessicaLahey.com. And if you sign up there... You'll get in your mailbox um, an auto-reply that has like links to frequently asked questions from Gift of Failure, They're these vi- this video series I did. There's a discussion guide for Gift of Failure. There's my speaking schedule. There's a bibliography of sort of my very favorite books that have to do with learning and parenting and teaching. Um, so you can always find me there. I'm on Twitter a lot because as a profession, teachers are the largest users of Twitter. So when people say oh my gosh, why are you on Twitter? Isn't it a horrible, dark place? I say, not when you follow 14,000 teachers. And I follow about 14,000 teachers on Twitter. And I it is amazing. It is such a positive place. And there I'm at Jess Leahy. And I'm on Instagram at, at Teacher Leahy. But you can find all of that at uh, JessicaLahy.com.
0: Got it. So um, the first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? Ooh.
1: Oh, man. Um, For various reasons, so there are a couple. So when I was in college and I read Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, it pretty much blew my head wide open. Um, That was the first time I really understood the power of sort of that Joseph Campbell idea of the collective unconscious, of stories, of myths, of the underlying stories of a culture that feed modern stories. I mean, Toni Morrison, all of her books are like that, but Song of Solomon for me it was a game changer for me. It made that was the book that class and that book was really what made me want to be a teacher and teach other people about that. And I still that's one of my favorite things to teach about is sort of how um, you know, that Joseph Campbell myth, um, you know, those stories that keep recurring in, in in the tales we tell over and over and over again. So for me, that was a really big one. Um, yeah, I really can credit that book as, as sort of make, helping me want to be a teacher. Um, now, oh man, I couldn't even begin there. I couldn't even begin to talk. There's so many, but um I love, um, I love, t- one of my favorite books to teach is uh, John Irving's uh, Prayer for Owen Meany. That book sort of blows my head open. Also, the ending of that book, just the first line of that book is one of my very favorite first lines of any book. And then the ending of that book sort of just makes my head explode. Also, yeah, there's, there's a lot. I, I don't know. I For people... Asking people what are their favorite books, um, it's a very complicated question. (laughs) (laughs)
0: The third one that comes to mind, maybe?
1: Uh, Third one, Um, looking back at my books here. I mean, Carol Dweck's mindset really changed the way I think about my own learning. Um, I was told when I was a young teenager that that I wasn't very good at math. and, And I believed that, and that became my destiny because I... Just because, And I wasn't even really told that um, outright. I was just sort of led to believe that. And so I let that become my destiny. And it wasn't until I was in my 40s and had avoided math for my entire life that I got angry about the idea that someone could make me believe that about myself. And it was because I read Carol Dweck's Mindset. And I went back and took uh, Algebra 1 in my 40s because I was so frustrated that I had let that become my destiny so Carol Dweck's mindset I think has been in terms of my own learning I think has been one of the most important books I've read as an adult
0: so um the second question is uh, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the Uh, most
1: uh, that's funny you ask that we um we just recently decided to put some movie posters up in our basement where we watch movies and we were all we all had to pick some favorites and I hate uh, from a parenting perspective it's got to be Princess Bride because I've watched that with my kids over and over and over again that's a movie that um continues to give with you know even as my kids went from being little kids to being teenagers and cynical teenagers who don't like the same movies as their parents we've watched that one a couple of times and and it just for me that's a a touchstone for our family The movie um, All the President's Men is one of the things, one of the movies that has that made me want to be a writer. Um, That movie, uh, in case you haven't seen it, is about the two journalists who uncovered the Nixon, the Watergate scandal for The Washington Post. That movie just. I don't know. It just fires me up every time. Um, The BBC, (laughs) the BBC's. Uh, Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ailey is um, is probably in there, up there I've as one of the movies I've watched the most as well. So Princess Bride, All the princes, President's Men and the BBC's uh, Pride and Prejudice, I think would be my top three.
0: The third question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory?
1: You know, I'm a writer who takes her office with me everywhere, and it's got to be my laptop. I mean, mm. frankly, it's you know, I'm using MacBook? it right now. As, yeah, it's a MacBook. I just, I actually just got a new one. The brand new ones just came out, and because it is my office, I travel with it. It goes with me everywhere. Um, there is no one thing I use more, but inside of my um, of my MacBook is um, is a program that I use for writing called Scrivener. And mm. Scrivener is has become the tool I use to write Scrivener and a program called um, EndNotes or BookNotes. Endnotes or Booknotes, I can't remember what EndNotes, I think. Um, and it's the sort of my bibliography, my citation manager. Um, but Scrivener is just an unbelievably useful product for writers. I used to use Microsoft Word, but Scrivener has become my go-to writing program. So, you know. I think that I think that really I could I could live just about anywhere, be just about anywhere. As long as I have my laptop and a Wi-Fi signal, I think I can get by working just about anywhere.
0: And and um for for everyone who is listening to this, I can also highly recommend Scrivener. It's a great tool, oh, exactly. and um yeah. I think it, it costs like uh, forty U.S. dollars or something like that. Yeah, and, it's, um, yeah,
1: it's so inexpensive, and it is so brilliant. And I talk, we talk about it a lot on our podcast. And I'm actually using this period where I'm I'm in edits on my book and not currently writing a book, so I'm using this time to get better at Scrivener. I'm watching some of the really great tutorials that are online in order to become a power Scrivener. <laughs> so that I, because I know there's all kinds of things that I'm doing in a stupid roundabout way, that there's much better ways to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to learn more.
0: <laughs> so, um, the fourth question is um, out of the five, uh, what have been the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? Most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years. And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about their (laughs) career, relationships, time, travel, so.
1: Part of it comes back to that mindset thing I talked to you about, that sometimes the intellectual limitations I put on myself are are just that there are limitations on self that, um, you know, like the math thing. Um, It turns out I'm not bad at math. It just turns out that math is difficult for, you know, it comes more easily to some people than to others. But math gets difficult for every single person, eventually, even people who are, you know, professional math, you know, math professors. So, um, you know, learning a little bit about that has been huge. The other thing I talk about sometimes is that, you know, my gift of failure, I've been so fortunate, and I worked so hard to make gift of failure a good book. And the first version of Gift of Failure was not a good book. It was it was really not good. And my editor made that very clear to me. And I had a decision to make at that point, which was to roll up in a ball and let her assign, you know, a freelance ghostwriter to sort of fix my book for me. Or, i could learn how to be a better writer and i chose the path of learning to be a better writer and so we took some extra time to edit that book and turn it into a much better book and a book that went on to be a bestseller on the new york times bestseller list and for me that was really traumatic because i was told by someone i respect so much my editor that my writing was not up to snuff and She said, you know, she couched it in all kinds of nice things. She said things like, oh, you know, you're a journalist. You're used to writing in 1,200 words at a time. And this is, you know, 80,000 words. um, And that can be hard for everyone. Um, But having the ability to sit there and hear all that negative feedback and use it to become a better writer, um, that's been That's something I'm incredibly proud of and that I don't think I would have been, um, I would have had to learn and I would have been as good at learning if things had just gone easily the first time. So I think, and that used to be a story I couldn't even tell. It was so embarrassing to me that it made me want to throw up. And so admitting that the first version of Gift of Failure was, as she put it in her words, unpublishable, was devastating, um, absolutely devastating. But now, you know, the lessons that she taught me that time around, I'm using on this second book, and I've gotten my edits back on this second book. And this second book is in much better shape than Gift of Failure ever was on the first pass. So
0: the last question for the day is, what would you tell your 20 year old self?
1: You'll get there eventually. I think my 20 year old self I've always been very optimistic, but I always thought that I needed a direct route from point A to point B or that, and if I didn't get there before everybody else, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life, that I somehow was failing. And I would just tell my 20 year old self to relax a little bit and let the road get you there. I mean, doing, as I mentioned before, doing all of these things that seem like they have no bearing on what I do now, are the very things that led me to where I am now. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. And I was recently talking to someone that I had a a really difficult relationship with um, in my early 20s. And I, I was thanking them for some of the stuff that we went through in that relationship. Because although at the time it was incredibly negative, I learned a lot about protecting myself and um being a better, stronger person because of that difficult relationship. So I, you know, I felt like in my, when I was 20, that I just needed to get there as quickly as possible and be the, be the best at whatever that thing was. And, um, I would just tell myself to relax a little bit. (laughs) I mean, continue to work hard, continue to work hard and continue to have goals and continue to push yourself, but you don't need to know at 20 where you're going to be. I didn't even figure out I wanted to be a teacher until I was 28. And that's been what I've been doing since then. So, and that's before my career as a writer ever started. So, you know, just, just relax a little bit, let yourself, (laughs) let yourself take the, you know, the untraveled path and sort of see where that takes you for a little bit and, um, and learn from it.
0: Thank you so much uh, for sharing your story, uh, being so vulnerable and um, yeah, helping everyone who is listening to this through your advice. And yeah, thank you so much for your time.
1: You're so, so. welcome.
0: <laughs> Have a good day. Talk soon. Thank bye you. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.